What's going on, folks? It's Undead Foya. Thought I would pop in and try to do at least an initial take on the Durham report, which we just got today. Um, just kind of setting some things up here. I'm going to give it another minute or two. There's um, a few of the other sleuths that might pop in and out. We'll try to get some of their uh, takes on the Durham report, obviously, as much as we can. And absolutely over the next few days we will do probably another chat or two just to get a little bit more it's going to take take a while for this to set in and uh, certainly want to do our due, due diligence and really do a deep dive into this report so for tonight what i think i'm going to start off is literally just scrolling through the report we can read it together um, see if i can highlight a few things and in full disclosure i have not had an opportunity to really sit down and read through this uh, since it was released today. I just skimmed it, uh, followed some of the other takes, some of the other analysis that people have been putting out. But as an initial matter, I have to be honest, I, I'm a little bit disappointed. There's a few things that stand out as I read this report. And what stands out to me is what is not in the report at all. And, and I think that's, a as I've written about, you know, I think that's a disservice to the country because this was the report that was supposed to give us the answers. We're not supposed to have any other questions right now. We're supposed to have the answers to everything that we wanted to know about. And unfortunately, that's not the position that we're in. Um, just scanning through this report and, you know, maybe I'm wrong about this, but I did not see much coverage at all of the DNC hack. I didn't see anything on the attribution for the DNC hack. I saw very little coverage of, you know, Team Mueller. We, we always heard about all those cell phones that were wiped. I didn't see anything that addressed questions around that. Um, you know, the, the questions around the General Flynn prosecution and their motivations behind bringing that case. I didn't see much. Um, you know, I, I don't think I saw any references to General Flynn in this report. And then, you know, the Clinton campaign officials and Hillary Clinton herself you know, where, where are the answers to the questions about how much they knew and how much they orchestrated these plans? There, there are some allusions to it. There's some references to some different conversations, but, you know, where are the answers? And then you talk about President Obama, and we, we're going to talk about the briefing that occurred, that the briefing on the Clinton campaign plan that John Brennan had uh, brought to President Obama, but where where are the answers about how much President Obama knew and his and his administration knew when they were pushing Russiagate forward? Um, so those are some glaring omissions that I, I'm really troubled with because after four years, like I said, we're not supposed to have open questions and right or wrong. I mean, some of the stuff, you know, if we're if there's nothing to it, you know, if there's nothing more to the story about the malicious prosecution about General Flynn. Durham should have said that, you know, just to leave it unaddressed, I think is a disservice to the country. And, and I say that as a, a great admirer of John Durham and his team. And I have to imagine it was incredibly hard what they did. Um, There's probably a lot of things they would rather have been doing the last few years. And, um, you know, I'm certainly thankful that they took up the mantle and, and did the investigation. But I'm really, really concerned because I can tell you right now, as it relates to the DNC hack and attribution, there are things that I know about 
that are not in this report. And there's things that I know about that aren't dispelled by this report, right? There's, there's things that I've heard and I've known about and learned about. There's nothing that contradicts what I've heard in this report. And that's, that's troubling to me too, because it's like, you know, I want in my capacity as an investigative journalist, I want to be honest. I want to be truthful and I want to bring information to everybody. And then the report comes out from the person that's been investigating this for a few years and there's no coverage one way or the other. And in some respects, I think he should have done a better job of clarifying it for the benefit of, you know, some of the people that are, are around this, like Rodney Joffe or some of the other researchers where he ripped them apart in filings in the Sussman trial. And, you know, I don't see anything that clarifies that situation. And, and I think, and in all honesty, if he's not going to bring prosecutions against somebody like Rodney Joffe, I think it was unfair what he did um, with some of those filings that really laid out, you know, this big overarching conspiracy and, you know, really left open or insinuated this big conspiracy. And then we get to the end and he didn't bring any charges. And he says he didn't accumulate enough evidence to bring any charges. And I think they deserve a little bit of an apology, perhaps. Um, but more than anything, they deserve clarification. I mean, I don't think we should be at a point where people have to speculate about what some of those individuals knew or what they were doing. And unfortunately, I think Durham's kind of left that door open. And I think that's unfair. So we're going to get into this. I'm just going to start scanning through this. Like I said, I, I have not done a deep dive on this. I've not read it real thoroughly. So what we're going to try to do is really cover that over the next couple hours. And hopefully um, some of the other sleuths will, will pop in here and uh, they will give me a break and maybe I will be able to hear from them and uh, get all the thoughts that we can. So table of contents, uh, 300 page report. It's actually kind of useful to have a table of contents. Um, first section, I don't think we care about, you know, principles of federal prosecution. I don't think anybody's interested in hearing about that. Um, FBI, you know, how are they supposed to conduct an investigation? I think uh, that's sort of self-explanatory. Uh, let's see. So they're just kind of, he's just kind of laying out some of the guidelines, it looks like. Um, so let's go to page 44. And we're just going to start scanning through this thing. So get a beverage, get comfortable. Um, certainly, uh, we'll have to revisit this and I'm sure I'm going to miss quite a bit of stuff. So, um, we're just going to do the best we can, uh, because I think this is something that we deserve, you know, coverage of. I think, uh, this is a pretty horrendous situation that we find ourselves in and, um, you know, we, we have to do our best to get through it in the most honest way that we can. So, um, Starting here, middle of the page, um, they're talking about the Carter Page investigation. So this is something that we knew since the IG Horowitz report. Um, essentially that they started a investigation of Carter Page in the spring of 2016. And that really related to, you know, Carter Page's relationship with the CIA and the FBI previously, where he was actually helping them prosecute a couple other Russians. And for whatever reason, whatever the referral was, 
they'd actually started looking into Carter Page just after he joined the Trump campaign. Um, so let's see if this says anything important. And there's going to be plenty of pauses as I read this. Like I said, guys, I, I haven't read this. Um, yeah, so he's talking about the appointment order. Um, what is stated in the Mueller report is equal truth for our investigation. Deciding whether to exercise this prosecutorial authority, the office has been guided by the principles of federal prosecution set forth in the Justice Manual. In particular, Office of Valuable List, blah, blah, blah. Let's see what else we have. So he's say, talking about why he brought the three cases that he did. Um, this is the important section. This is what I wanted to start with. So in addition to its prosecution declination decisions, the office made the following referrals to other entities. So this is important. A referral on June 30th, 2020 to the FBI's Washington field office regarding a matter relating to an existing counterintelligence investigation. We have no idea what that is. I don't know if that's covered a little bit more later in this report, but um, that is uh, very vague. No idea what that could be. I don't want to speculate on what that could be. Um, no idea. Uh, number two, a referral in December 2022 OI of information relating relevant to the accuracy of information contained in the four non-page FISA applications. So. That's interesting. Um, I know through looking through Twitter, they did apply for FISA warrants against at least George Papadopoulos. So we're just going to have to revisit that as we get to that section because I didn't read it closely enough. Uh, number three, referrals of two matters on December 14, 2022. So that's only five months ago, five, six months ago, to the Inspector General of the Department of Defense with a copy of the General Counsel of the Defense Intelligence Agency. One matter involved the execution of a contract between DARPA and the Georgia Institute of Technology, and a separate matter involved irregular conduct in 2016 of two former employees of the Department of Defense. So that's very interesting. So um, depending on how what your level of awareness is relating to um, the Alpha Bank allegations, um, that's sort of where it ties in, I think. And what had happened was in formulating the Alpha Bank allegations, uh, we had found out that, um, you know, Georgia Tech had purchased some data from a few different vendors. I believe Newstar was one, and they had sort of mined it for uh, some, some materials on Donald Trump. So um, related to that, they had actually used funds, it appears, from a contract from DARPA. And hopefully we get a little bit more color on that later. That is what I have to assume that would relate to. And then a separate matter involved regular conduct in 2016 of two former employees of the Department of Defense. That could be related to DARPA. Um, it's a little bit interesting that he doesn't, he says DARPA in the first sentence. He does not say DARPA in the second sentence. So Department of Defense, that could be anything. Don't want to speculate on who that could be. Uh, number four, a referral to the FBI's OGC and inspection division of the FBI agent for failing to document properly the known history of Igor Danchenko upon his opening as FBI CHS. Yeah, uh, no doubt about that. I mean, so many questions about Igor Danchenko. He was the subject of a counterintelligence investigation back in 2009 and, um, you know, pretty, pretty sketchy. And nobody, you know, apparently 
everybody had lost sight of that fact. And then we knew that he had told some lies and he had fabricated some materials. And, um, you know, he, he basically walked in the door and said, you know, I don't know anything about the Steele dossier as the primary subsource of the Steele dossier. And then they made him a confidential human source. So that that's a little bit concerning. So it doesn't surprise me there's a referral there. And then lastly, a referral to FBI's OGC and inspection division of the same FBI agent for questionable instructions given to Danchenko regarding the taxability of cash payments made to him by the FBI. So that's interesting. Um, <laughs> uh, don't think we know exactly who that is. Uh, we might be able to speculate on that. I'm sure we'll have a little bit more coverage of that. So we'll see if we can figure out exactly who that FBI agent is. Let's see what else we got. And additional referrals described above the office also provided information to the FBI's inspection division regarding certain activities by current and former FBI employees. Okay, so that's pretty vague. Uh, starting off, Crossfire Hurricane Investigation, uh, New York Field Office Investigation Page. That's where we were talking about a minute ago. So they had, they had started investigating Carter Page. Um, a lot of this is covered in the IG Horowitz report. I don't want to rehash that. Um, just because we're going to be going for a couple hours. And um, if you haven't seen this, if you're not familiar with Carter Page being investigated, uh, certainly revisit the IG Horde's report or just read this here. I don't want to rehash that here unless there's something new. Uh, that's interesting. So Comey was briefed on the Page investigation. And Okay, so they're, they're saying Director Comey knew that Carpage was being investigated. So that's, that is pretty interesting. That is important. Uh, in July, same personnel described the Page case and ones like it as a top priority for Director Comey. So that's pretty interesting. Um, doesn't look good on Director Comey. Let's see what else we got here. Record reviewed by the office, predisposition. Yeah, so he's basically saying people hated Trump uh, for sons here. For example, Peter Strzok. Yeah, Peter Strzok, Lisa Page. Of course, that's pretty famous now, right? Like we, we've already seen this. Um, calling Trump an idiot. We don't need to go over that. If you haven't heard about that by now, it's... You know, it's out there. Uh, certainly, you can read through this. See if there's anything else. This one's kind of so struck agreed to provide information to the office concerning matters related to the FBI's Alpha Bank allegation, but otherwise declined to be interviewed by the office on matters related to the role to his role in the crossfire hurricane investigation. So he declined to be interviewed by John Durham other than the Alpha Bank stuff. So that's that's pretty weird. Uh, he's also citing his book. So 191, um, yeah, so that's interesting. His report cites Peter Strzok's book. Uh, nice, okay. Yep, going through more text messages. Um, you know, we're gonna skip that. Although those, although those involved in opening the Crossfire Hurricane investigation denied that bias against Trump was a factor in opening the investigation, the communications quoted above quite clearly showed, at least on part of certain personnel, 
intimately involved in the matter, a predisposition to open investigation into Trump, right? Uh, so basically, that's a lot to say they hated Trump, uh, and in, at least it's bad optics, right? It's bad optics to have people that hate Trump on an investigation of Trump. That's that's pretty obvious, and they should have recused themselves, or the FBI should have reassigned them from the start. So that's unfortunate. What else we got here? Uh, so predication. That question that question has divided itself into two related questions. What was the information that predicated the opening of the investigation, and did that investigation support such an investigation being opened, not as an assessment or preliminary investigation, but from the start as a full investigation? And exploring those questions, we determine the following. Bullet point A, the information used to predicate Crossfire Hurricane. In March 2016, Trump campaign identified George Papadopoulos as a foreign policy advisor. So they're talking about the Papadopoulos angle to this. And that, that should be pretty familiar too as well. So um, you know, the story goes that George Papadopoulos, you know, was at a bar. Um, you know, there's speculation in the media that, you know, any number of actors might have had Hillary Clinton's emails at the time from a private server that she had hosted. And there's a lot of speculation. There's speculation that Russia might have had them. There's speculation that China could have hacked it. Um, you know, there's a lot of questions about what type of security, you know, she had on the server. And, and so the, there's a lot of speculation around that time that, you know, any number of people could have had them. Um, so he goes and he, he basically repeats something that was on Fox News the night before to Alexander Downer just says, you know, you know, I think the Russians have them. And then Downer relays that through the Australian government, which circulated back to the U.S. government in late July and basically said, you know, we we heard this, you know, about George Papadopoulos saying something about Hillary Clinton's emails. And of course, that was that was irrelevant. Right. And I think Durham's going to find that and probably discuss that here as we go through this, because, you know, if George Papadopoulos was talking about Hillary's emails, well, the Russians didn't have Hillary Clinton's emails. They didn't release Hillary Clinton's emails. They released the emails of the DNC, you know, the Democratic National Committee, and they are not the same, right? You can't, you can't just look past that because it's inconvenient. They're they're not the same thing. So uh, she's talking about George Papadopoulos. Here, here they're talking about Australia providing that tip to the U.S. government. Let's see, paragraph. Five is an abstract from the cable and was quoted verbatim in the Crossfire Hurricane opening. You see, stating in its entirety that Mr. Papadopoulos was unsurprisingly confident that Mr. Trump could win the election. He commented that the Clintons had a lot of baggage and suggested the team, the Trump team, had plenty of material to use in his campaign. He also suggested that the Trump team had received some kind of suggestion from Russia that it could assist in this process with the anonymous release of information during the campaign that would be damaging to Mrs. Clinton and President Obama. It was unclear whether he or the Russians were referring to material acquired publicly or through other means. It was also unclear how Mr. Trump's team reacted to the offer. We know that Trump's, the Trump team's reaction could, in the end, have little bearing of what Russia decides to do with or without Mr. Trump's cooperation. So the Australian account reflects the, that two means of casual nature took place with Papadopoulos. These means were documented by Downer on May 11, 2016, and by Australian diplomat number one later in the month. Both diplomats advised that prior to the spring of 2016, Papadopoulos was unknown to them. 
Notably, the information in paragraph five does not include any mention of the hacking of the DNC, the Russians being in possession of emails, or the public release of any emails. So, you know, as they released these DNC emails in July of 2016, he's saying, you know, this information was irrelevant. Like there's nothing that tied it to the release of these emails from the DNC. And that was a poor predicate uh, to open up a full investigation is basically what he, he seems to be saying here. As recounted the FBI on August 2nd, 2016 by Australian diplomat number one, the substance of paragraph five was written in a purposely vague way. That's what you like to see, you know, with the stakes as high as they are, that's what you that's what you want, right? Purposely vague. Uh, this was done because Papadopoulos left a number of things unexplained. Well, of course he did. He was just in a bar. Uh, let's see. Is there anything new here? I don't see anything new. All right. So let's move on to paragraph B, which is the lack of intelligence information supporting the premise of Crossfire Hurricane. And Durham says, as an initial matter, there is no question that the FBI had an affirmative obligation to closely examine the paragraph five information. The paragraph five information, however, was the sole basis cited by the FBI for opening a full investigation of individuals associated with the ongoing Trump campaign. So that's, that's pretty interesting. That's, that's important, right? Significantly, the FBI opened a full investigation before any preliminary discussions or interviews were undertaken with either the Australian diplomats or Papadopoulos. Further, the opening EC does not describe any collaboration or joint assessments of the information with either friendly foreign intelligence services or other US intelligence services. So they were basically chomping at the bit to open up an investigation. This tip comes in, it's garbage. You know, there's really no substantiation and they open up an investigation when it doesn't even make sense is basically what Durham is saying there. What else we got? Just kind of scanning through this. Although not referenced in the opening EC, FBI officials have later pointed to the importance of the Australian information when viewed in conjunction with Russia's likely connections to WikiLeaks disclosures and its efforts to interfere with 2016 elections. In addition, Trump had recently stated, you know, Russia, if you're listening, I hope you're able to find the 30,000 emails that are missing. So Durham's summarizing that, you know, this is what everybody points to. And let's see, the evidence office reviewed shows that there were internal discussions with FBI headquarters executives, including the deputy director, that's Andrew McCabe, about the decision to open Crossfire Hurricane the executives were unanimous in supporting the opening of the investigation. There is no indication that the dis discussions contemplated anything short of an immediate full investigation, such as an assessment or preliminary investigation into the meaning, credibility, and underpinnings of the statements attributed to Papadopoulos. That's troubling. The personnel involved in the decision to open a full investigation have stated that they acted within the FBI's governing principles as set forth in the AGG.DOM and DL, I don't know. I don't know what that is. Whatever those are, uh, sound important. 
that required a, an authorized purpose and articulable factual basis for the investigation that reasonably indicates that an activity constituting a federal crime or a national security threat may be occurring. But notably, uh, the manual, I'm just gonna call it a manual, also, also explicitly cautions FBI employees to avoid reputational risk to those being investigated by, among other things, specifying different standards for an opening investigation, a preliminary investigation, and a full investigation, and a corresponding continuum of permissible investigative activities. So, you know, that's a lot to say. You know, Durham is basically criticizing these FBI agents and, you know, the head of the FBI for really opening up this investigation just based on, you know, Papadopoulos in a bar. And, and, you know, somewhere there is going to be a PowerPoint about, you know, being careful as a, as a staffer on a campaign, right? I mean, you know, you're going to have to, you know, somebody's going to have to do some training. If you're, if you're drunk in a bar and you talk about, you know, you're speculating about something on the news, apparently that is going to, you know, you have to consider that is going to be a risk to set forth the largest investigation in political history and one that would result in the spying and slander of numerous people. And all of that is apparently set forth by George Papadopoulos getting drunk one night. That's pretty crazy. Let's see. Information from Papadopoulos was clearly raw and unevaluated. I would say so. What else we got? Nevertheless, the FBI predicated Crossfire Hurricane and subsequent investigative activities, including the use of confidential human sources, undercover operations, and FISA coverage on the statements attributed to Papadopoulos. See, what's really interesting here is I don't think Papadopoulos, you know, he doesn't show up in the Carter Page FISA warrants. Now, as we're going to learn, I think they sought FISA coverage on George Papadopoulos, which is really ridiculous, but it's not like Papadopoulos showed back up. Um, later, like I, I don't, I don't recall there being much, and they really never developed much of an investigation on George Papadopoulos, chiefly because he was not in the Steele dossier, and um, you know, whatever predication they had uh, to seek a FISA, a FISA warrant against George Papadopoulos was solely, it would seem, at this point, uh, based on his statement in a bar, and they didn't have. You know, anything on the Steele dossier, which we know made up the primary uh, weight for seeking the FISA warrants. And they didn't even have that on George Papadopoulos. So apparently all they had was probably, you know, this conversation in the bar and some pretty ambiguous statements to confidential human sources, which I'm sure we are going to cover soon. All right. So let's read through this a little bit more. Okay, so this, this is a, an interesting section that I definitely want to highlight here. Let's make sure I got this right. So this is something that was highlighted a few years ago, and, and that was that the Russians were aware of Christopher Steele's activities, um, you know, really by mid 2016, this is what it says. 
The SSCI Russia report notes that sensitive reporting from June 2017 indicated that a person affiliated to Russia oligarch number one, and that's Oleg Deripaska, was aware of, was possibly aware of Steele's election investigation as of July 2016. Indeed, in early June 2017, USIC report indicating that two persons affiliated with Russian intelligence services were aware of Steele's election investigation as early as July 2016. Put more pointedly, Russian intelligence knew of Steele's election investigation for the Clinton campaign by no later than July 2016. Thus, as discussed in Section 4, D1A3, Steele's sources may have been compromised by the Russians at a time prior to the creation of the Steele reports and throughout the FBI's Crossfire Hurricane investigation. So that is pretty interesting. Um, let's see, might skip through this a little bit. Interview of Australian diplomats. Uh, this is something that we've known about. Let's see if there's anything new. Basically, early on, right after the opening of Crosshair Hurricane, uh, Peter Strzok and Supervisor for Special Agent Number One, I don't know if they have different terminology here in the German report. It. So um, I think I know who that is, but we'll, we'll revisit that. Uh, basically sought the, the assistance. They went out and they interviewed um, they interviewed Downer and a couple others, I believe. Let's see if there's anything important in here. Uh, UK one. Hmm. Not sh I'm not completely sure I know who that is. Um, but basically, he told the office that British intelligence service, number one, did not assess that the information about the Russians and Trump attributed to Papadopoulos to be particularly valuable intelligence. Indeed, he told the FBI's inspection division investigators that the British could not believe the Papadopoulos bar conversation was all there was. Well, I don't think that we can believe it either. And they were convinced the FBI must have had more information behind its back. And that that's sort of the house of cards, right? It's it's sort of the trick that's been at the heart of this because there's always been more smoke than fire. And as it turns out, all there was was smoke and it was smoke that they themselves were creating because we, we heard all that stuff. We heard all that throughout 2017 and 2018 where all these people would come on TV and they would say, well, I've seen evidence of collusion, right? Um, you know, there, there is definitely something there, right? We all remember Adam Schiff saying he, he had information and, you know, they were doing that on TV, but then you got them behind closed doors and under oath and individually, none of them had ever seen any information of this alleged collusion scheme. And, you know, everybody, I think everybody sort of had this idea that they were convinced the FBI must have had more information that was holding back. And, you know, I have to admit, I think I probably had that sentiment back in 2017, right? If, if all this was going on, there was so much on TV every single night and the FBI, you know, we had Comey going to Congress in March, 2017 saying, you know, he's investigating Trump. And, and of course, Sharon Flynn had resigned by then um, for no reason, as it turns out, you know, I, I thought there was something there and it turns out there was nothing there. And, you know, everything that they had was was either weak or contradicted by other evidence. So that's 
It's pretty crazy. Uh, so let's talk about this link exchange. Dude, we're, we are, are we telling them that the British intelligence service, number one, everything we know, or is there more to this? Supervisory special agent, number one, that's all we have. Not holding anything back. And then the UK British guy says, damn, that's done. And the supervisor special agent number one says, I know that that's what you want to see, right? Like you, <laughs> you want like the seasoned pros who open investigations and investigate people for a living to say, yeah, this is pretty weak. That That's very comforting. <laughs> and then another line, supervisory special agent number one, it sucks. That I would agree with that. It does suck. Um, all right, let's scan through this. So they're talking about, <laughs> okay, so, so apparently there was some information relating to Carter Page and we know, I'll have to revisit my notes, but we know Carter Page was basically being recorded by a couple different people and CHS number one, I would think that would be Stefan Halper, but let's put an asterisk by that right now, because I, I don't want to say that for sure. Members of Crossfire Hurricane team played the audio and visual recordings of CHS number one, as confidential human source number one, is August 20th, 2016, meeting with Carter Page. Uh, our UK guy said the effect on the British intelligence service number one's personnel was not positive because of the lack of any evidence coming out of, out of the conversation. The UK guys told the OIG that after watching the video, one of his British colleagues said, for expletive's sake, man, you went through a lot of trouble to get him to say nothing. You know, and we're talking about this August 20, 20th, 2016 meeting. This is exculpatory, right? Or, or, you know, at least if not exculpatory, like it should be troubling and we know within a few weeks they were seeking FISA coverage on Carter Page. And it's like, you know, everything they were doing was not producing evidence. Um, from his vantage point, the UK guy saw that the FBI executive management was pushing the matter so hard that there was no stopping the train. And he told the OIG that, I mean, it was, this thing was coming. So my job was to grease the skids for it. And that's what I did. Boy, that's kind of a red flag right there. I'd like to see him subpoenaed and ask him a few questions. Had the Crossfire Hurricane investigators attempted to critically assess the information from Papadopoulos through FBI holdings and standard requests to other government agencies for information about Trump and Russian intelligence services involving Trump, they would have learned. Jonathan Moffa served as the chief of the FBI's counterintelligence analysis section throughout 2016. Moffa was a career FBI intelligence analyst who began working as a full-time FBI counter-espionage counter analyst in 2004. And prior to being selected for the section chief position, January 2016, had been chief of the Russian analysis unit for approximately four years. Moffa advised investigators that he had heard nothing about Trump and Russia until the events began to be reported in July 2016. So I think this kind of goes to the heart of some of those older stories where, you know, back in 2017, 2018, there, 
there was all these people on TV that were talking about, you know, yeah, we started receiving information back in 2015 or by the spring of 2016. And then you get, you know, the people that are actually in the know and they're like, yeah, I didn't hear about this until July 2016. And that's, you know, that's when the Steele dossier is starting to circulate. So that's important to know. What else would they have learned? You know, the FBI intelligence analyst who had perhaps the most knowledge uh, disclosed that she never saw anything regarding Trump election campaign conspiracy with the Russians, nor did, see, nor did she see anything in FBI holdings regarding Carter Page, Michael Flynn, George Papadopoulos, or Paul, Paul Manafort engaging in any type of conspiracy with the Russians regarding the election. So, you know, also siloed, right? We're, we're talking about a pretty, apparently a pretty small team and I think where I, I saw in another section of this, he talks about the experience level of the different staff members and, and FBI agents on, on Crossroad Hurricane. And other than um, Brian Auten, all of them were rookies. All of them were, were had very little experience. And you know, they didn't put a crack team of experienced people, you know, people knowledgeable about Russian Russia on this. They they chose inexperienced staff. And that sort of tells you, you know. You know, that tells you a lot. And that offers up some questions about what the motivations of the FBI leadership really were in putting this all together. So let's see what else they would have learned. Uh, James Clapper, um, you know, he testified before Congress on the subject of Trump and Russia. And he answered no when he asked if he was aware of any such evidence. Yeah, that's that's pretty important. Former DNI reconfirmed this fact when he was interviewed by the office and advised that he knew of no direct evidence that would meet the legal standard of conspiracy or occlusion on Trump's part. Uh, Mike Rogers, same thing. He, he, he's saying he had nothing. Victoria Newland, oh, this is going to be interesting, uh, served as Undersecretary of Political Affairs at the Department of State during the relevant time frame, a career employee of the Department of State and one of the most experienced Russian observers. She told our investigators that she never saw any U.S. government proof of the allegations contained in the Steele dossier reporting regarding Trump and Russian officials, and further stated that to her re recollection, no information regarding a well-coordinated conspiracy between Trump and the Russians had ever come across her desk, with one exception. Newland advised that she had received a two-page summary of the Steele allegations from Jonathan Weiner, who in, in 2016 was serving as Secretary's uh, state carries special envoy Olivia. Um, so that's something we knew about as well. So, um, you know, basically Jonathan Weiner uh, started playing middleman and he, he effectively was able to get information from Cody Shear and he got information from Christopher Steele and he basically passed along that information and that created this corroboration element. And that's something we're going to see a lot of as, as we continue looking through this report is this, you know, I won't call it an illusion. There was an illusion of corroboration where through feeding information, feeding the same information through multiple avenues and multiple entry points to the U.S. government, they created the illusion that there was corroboration. They thought, you know, they created enough confusion that somebody could have said, well, you know, we, we're, we're getting this from the State Department, too. We're getting it in through the FBI. We're getting it in through members of Congress. And it's actually all the same information coming from the exact same people, but because they they didn't report exactly who it was coming from, 
uh, it created the illusion that this was corroboration that and that created pressure that created pressure on them to advance this investigation and to go further when you know the evidence really it just didn't support it it just didn't so john brennan and david cohen were interviewed by the office and asked about their knowledge of any actual evidence of members of the trump campaign conspiring or colluding with russian officials when brennan was provided with an overview of the origins of the attorney general's review after special counsel Mueller finding a lack of evidence of collusion between the trump and russian authorities brennan offered that they found no conspiracy all right a lot of reading here let's see if there's anything important uh let's see brennan appeared to you know, after this report, Brennan appeared on MSBC's Morning Joe program where he stated that he suspected that there was more than there actually was with regard to collusion between the Trump campaign and Russia during, in the 2016 election, thus suggesting he had no actual knowledge of, of such information. So this is where people start walking it back, right? The same people that were, you know, jumping on every TV station, every MSNBC program for a couple of years saying, oh, there's more evidence or, you know, <laughs> uh, uh, Trump will not live out. You know, he will not serve out his term. Trump's going to have to re resign. The walls are closing in. Everybody that was saying the walls are closing in. Once you get them under oath, they're saying, no, I, I never had any evidence of that <laughs> at all, uh, which is, is, you know, of course, right? That, of course we knew that. Um, but there's not going to be accountability, right? MSNBC is not going to do like some big piece or or big mea culpa where they, you know, they disclose anything. Like it, it, it's not going to happen. So, what else we have here? All right, spent a lot of time on Papadopoulos. Just kind of trying to hit the main points. I am not going to hit them all. I'm going to miss stuff for sure. That's why we're going to do multiple iterations of this. And certainly I'm going to bring in more of the other sleuths who have uh, really spent a little bit more time reading this and, and they're actually digging through it right now. And once we get them in here, we'll have more of a lively conversation. But for now, I'm going to continue with this because this is important. This is what we waited for for years. Um, I made my concerns known at the start of this video where I'm talking about what's not in this report. and certainly uh i think more people will talk about that or next few days and and i don't know what john durham's hearing is going to be like on, on you know on capitol hill um he's going to get asked some tough questions and like is, is he going to provide new information i don't know um because there's a, there's questions that deserve to be answered and you know if durham's not going to answer them I don't, I don't know what the point of calling him really is so let's see what else we have here in July 2016, in addition to receiving the first several steel reports, the FBI received a separate stream of information regarding Trump from a former FBI CHS. Specifically, an FBI supervisor from a New England field office was contacted unexpectedly by a former CHS with whom the supervisor had worked for many years. Earlier, when assigned to a different field office on matters related to Russian organized crime. The New England Supervisory Special Agent Number One agreed to meet his former CHS on July 21, 2016. So it's pretty interesting. This is something new. At that meeting, the, the CHS told the Supervisor Special Agent Number One that he or she 
had been contacted by a colleague who owns a investigative firm and who was looking into Trump's various business contacts and ventures in Russia. The former CHS did not identify the investigative firm that day, expect, except to say that the firm had been hired by the DNC and another unnamed individual. The former CHS then provided New England Supervisor Special Agent Number One with a list of approximately 45 individuals and entities who had reportedly serviced in the firm's investigation of Trump's Russia, ties to Russia. This is interesting. So this expands on a footnote in the IG Horowitz report where IG Horowitz had noted that there was this former CHS and Andrew McCabe later shut this former CHS down and said, don't give us more, any more information or you know, don't take in any information from this former CHS. And the reason this is sort of a red flag is when they talk about this list, because where we've also heard about this list of Trump associates is in the Sussman trial and specifically in some discussions around Rodney Joffe and some of the taskings around that, that group. I don't want to say Joffe was at the center of everything. I don't know, but that, that collective of individuals, that's where the list of Trump associates had reportedly come in. So that's, that's pretty interesting. I'm trying to new England. <laughs> I, I think I know who this is. That's interesting. Um, yeah, New England is a is a big hint uh, for those of us that have been following this closely. And I think Durham, you know, it is standard practice to say he, she, when you're talking about a CHS, because you don't want to identify them. But I, I, I would take note of that. So that, that I'm going to put a pin in that. We're going to revisit that. Um, see if we can get a little bit more color, a little bit more flavor on this former CHS. But I think I think we know who that is. So we'll, we'll revisit that. Oh, we get a little bit more coverage. There we go. Perfect. <laughs> that, was, that was fortuitous. The list was comprised mostly of Russian individuals and entities and immediately raised red flags for the New England Supervisor Special Agent Number 1, who believed it was necessary to get the information into the right hands as soon as possible. Following the July 21, 2016 meeting, New England Special uh, Supervisor Special Agent Number One emailed a counterintelligence colleague about the meeting and forwarded the list of names he had received. So this is why New England is sort of interesting. And, and I'll throw this out there, and obviously we have to confirm this, but Zetalytics and um, some of these other entities are actually in the New England region. So that, that is pretty interesting. That's that's a connection that I'm sort of piecing together. Um, so that might be a lead where we might look into that a little bit more. But here we are. I mean, this is, this is the list of Trump associates. Um, and this is July 21, 2016. That's a really, really interesting time because that is a couple days before the release of the WikiLeaks, uh, of the DNC emails by WikiLeaks. That's a few days before. Um, I think that was July 24th that the emails were released. And, um, you know, a few days before that, they're talking about some of these connections. 
let's see what else we have. Former CHS uh, came back to the FBI in August 2016 that he or she had reviewed a large volume of material that the investigative firm had compiled and former CHS passed on more information from that effort. Interesting. And then one month later on September 23rd, that's a really interesting date. These are both actually really important dates. If you put these on a timeline and maybe pull up like Jeff Carlson's infographic, which is still fantastic. Uh, there's some really interesting events happening around both of these dates. Then one month later, former CHS reached out again, prompting New England Supervisor Special Agent Number One to email across for hurricane investigators again to report that the CHS has more information on Trump's reported ties to Russia. Ooh, this is pretty interesting. So months later, on January 11, 2017, after the Steele dossier had been made public. The supervisory special agent number one asked another agent if anything was to be gleaned from the information he provided in July. It was at that time that the supervisory special agent let the New England guy know that his team had received the same information through separate reporting stream from a different source in context being Steele. So Christopher Steele had brought the same information to the FBI. Supervisory Special Agent Number One further advised that the second source was working with the same investigative firm that had been given the information to the former CHS. Sometime later, the New England special, special Agent had learned that the former CHS had developed the information related to Trump while working with Len Simpson and Fusion GPS. Thus, it appears that in July 2016, the FBI had not yet determined that dual reporting it was received had act, was actually coming from the same source, that is, Simpson and Fusion GPS. Further, it does not appear that the FBI was aware of the fact that essentially the same information the former CHS was providing to the New England guy was being provided to the media by Simpson and Fusion GPS. This was a pattern similar to that later employed in the Alpha Bank matter when the Alpha Bank allegations were provided to members of the media by Fusion GPS and then to the FBI through Michael Sussman. So that's interesting that he draws that comparison, right? And I just talked about the Zetalytics, you know, being in uh, New England. And again, I, I'm not suggesting it's anybody specifically right now. We're going to have to do a little bit more research on that. But he draws a, a straight line or a comparison to Alpha Bank. So we'll see if that is important, if we can nail that down a little bit more. I definitely want to get the take of, you know, like full Nelson or walk apart would be brilliant on that sort of um, identification. Let's see what else we have. We have to take a little water, I think. Checking on stream. How's everybody doing? Got a few few people in chat. Good stuff. All right. Other investigative activity prior to the receipt of the Steele report. So that, that's important. Between the time the FBI opened the Crossfire Hurricane investigation and when Crossfire Hurricane investigators first received steel reports in mid-September, the FBI took the following investigative steps. As discussed above, Strzok and a supervisor special agent met with Australian officials. Uh, records and open source data were checked on by on the four Crossfire Hurricane subjects. Travel of the subjects was monitored. Some records were obtained from other federal agencies and a federal government. 
FBI confidential human sources and UCEs. Not sure what UCE is, to be honest. We're used to engage with some of the subjects. Uh, so that's pretty interesting. Um, and, and there is sort of a disconnect here where some of the reports, you know, the Steele reports were bounced around in July, right? Christopher Steele was actually given the reports to the FBI in July 2016, but there's always been this longstanding disconnect where, you know, the crossword hurricane investigators didn't receive the reports until mid-September. So, um, you know, they were bouncing around a little bit before that. We, I don't, I don't know if Darren will clarify for that, uh, clarify that for us a little bit more. By the time, let's see, I don't want to read this whole thing. There's 300 pages. Anything else in here? Yeah. Uh, all the competent human sources, everything they had done, those operations had not resulted in the collection of any inculpatory information. So they didn't find anything that bolstered this case that there's some type of collusion or conspiracy underway between Trump and Russia. They had no evidence developed. And despite that, despite that, they would go on and seek a FISA warrant against Carter Page. FBI personnel told the OIG that FBI did not use national security letters or compulsory process prior to obtaining the first FISA orders. FBI Deputy General Counsel Anderson said that early on, FBI managers took off the table any idea of legal process because, because the FBI was trying to move very quietly. Similarly, members of the Crossfire Hurricane team told the OIG that they avoided any use of compulsory legal process to obtain information at this time in order to prevent any public disclosure and investigations existence and to avoid any potential impact on the election. Notably, notably absent from the list of investigative steps uh, taken were the following non-public, non-compulsory options. So, so Durham's saying this is what you could have done. Interviewing Page, Carter Page, particularly once the FBI's interest in him was publicly disclosed by the media. In fact, two days after this disclosure, Page wrote to Director Comey offering to be interviewed, but the FBI elected not to do so. And, and so this circles back to Michael Isikoff uh, writing an article, I think it was September 23rd, 2016, where you know, he was talking about Carter Page being the subject of an investigation by the FBI. So two days later, I think it was September 25th, Carter Page wrote a letter to Jim Comey and he said, Hey, I don't know what this is about, but I've worked with the FBI. I've worked with the CIA in the past. You know, if if you have any questions at all, I'd I'd love to come in and help you. Let's you know, let's put this to bed. And they ignored that. <laughs> like they just instead of addressing that, instead of interviewing Car Page, they got a FISA warrant against them, so they could just spy and and take you know all the data and everything they wanted um, instead. So uh, Durham saying you could have just interviewed Carter Page, and they decided not to. Number two, uh, you could have asked Carter Page, who volunteered to be interviewed and had spoken with the FBI when asked to do so on prior occasions, if he would consent to a polygraph exam or provide access to relevant electronic records. So there he is this saying again, like, you could have talked to Carter Page. You could have asked him, like, hey, will you consent to a polygraph exam? And, you know, the alternative being a very intrusive FISA warrant um, that would intrude on many people's civil liberties. You know, you know Carter Page, just have him come in. He's volunteering himself to come in. He wrote this letter. 
he will come talk to you. Um, you know, he's making himself available. And if you had just asked him, you know, maybe he would have taken a polygraph exam. You know, you, you didn't have to go get a, a FISA warrant against him. And number three, using any, using other standard investigative techniques not requiring court order. I don't know what those could be. Or interviewing Papadopoulos, the actual source of the paragraph five information. So, so this is where Durham sort of makes the point, right? Apparently, you know, George Papadopoulos had kicked off this entire investigation. And instead of, you know, really running down this investigation on George Papadopoulos, they go and they seek a FISA warrant against Carter Page. It's like, you know, it's two steps beyond, you know, you, you just use whatever justification, like your friend might have messed something up. And now, you know, your court is doing a search warrant at your house and your friend's like never been there before. Um, like there's like no connection between Carter Page and George Papadopoulos. They don't know each other at all. And um, I don't even think there's like, there's like, there's nothing. There's just no connection there. And Papadopoulos kicks off the investigation and then you go and you, and you get a FISA warrant against somebody else. Um, that's bad form. <laughs> um, another step the Crossfire Hurricane investigators could have taken but chose not to take was the use of pen registers and trap and trace devices. Although FISA authorizes the government to obtain a pen register when the information likely to be obtained is relevant to an ongoing investigation to protect against clandestine investigative activities, Case Agent 1 told the OIG that he saw pen registers as a criminal authority. So um, talking about, you know, some of these other techniques, uh, nothing, nothing that was too interesting there. So I want to skip over that a little bit. Um, FBI, you know, disparate treatment of candidates Clinton and Trump. In the course of the office's investigation, we learned of allegations involving possible attempted foreign election influence activities associated with Clinton's. Uh, associated with entities related to Clinton, in addition to the allegations related to Trump. The office sought to determine to the extent possible if the actions taken by the FBI and in certain cases the department to address the allegations were consistent with those taken by the FBI relating to allegations of Russian foreign intelligence influence attached to the Trump campaign. So he's saying, you know, there's all these allegations about Hillary Clinton. Did the FBI act in an equitable manner did they you know give the same treatment to both candidates that's what he's asking that's what he was looking at so let's see what he says as an initial matter given the particular nature of the allegations related to each campaign attempting to view the fbi's investigative activity in an apples to apples approach is undoubtedly an imperfect method to analyze whether the fbi had engaged in disparate treatment of the campaigns Nevertheless, the comparisons are instructive, and below we will discuss our observations regarding the investigative approach to allegations of foreign election influence. All right, let's see. Uh, basically, on Hillary Clinton, the FBI learned from a well-placed confidential human source, CHSA, that a foreign government, foreign government number two, was planning to send an individual <laughs> to contribute to Clinton's anticipated presidential campaign as a way to gain influence with Clinton should she win the presidency. That's pretty damning. Uh, FBI's independence cooperation of this information is discussed in the classified ant, uh, appendix. So apparently there's some pretty damning information about Hillary Clinton. 
And so they saw FISA coverage against this person. And let's see what we have here. Durham saying everybody was scared with big name Clinton involved. They're tiptoeing around Hillary Clinton because there's a chance she'd be the next president. Let's see what else. So it sounds like yeah, they had some pretty damning information on Hillary Clinton and they didn't do anything about it. Um, they're saying certain critical activity in the investigation was delayed for months due to, among other things, concerns that a politician, aka Hillary Clinton, was involved and that the investigation might interfere with a presumed future presidential campaign. <laughs> so that's, uh, that's not ideal. Uh, so they're talking about a December 2014 memo where the FBI says, no, we don't want to touch it because she's going to run for, for the presidency. And in December 2014, they were scared enough not to investigate Hillary Clinton on that basis alone where, you know, she might become president. So we're not going to touch it. That's that's not good. Um, defensive briefings looks like they didn't do those equitably either. Um, as we we know, you know, they use defensive briefing as a justification or basically an end to collect notes on Donald Trump and General Flynn. We knew about that already. And I think we have reports that were already out there that um, they didn't do the same thing with Hillary Clinton. Uh, we knew we knew there's a few reports out there about Clinton where um, when they gave a defensive briefing to Hillary Clinton, it was just a defensive briefing. They didn't use it to spy on her. They didn't use defensive briefing to collect information on apparently this investigation or, or any other. Um, so that's important to note. All right, I'm going to skip over this section. This is probably good stuff. I'm going to skip over anything that relates to Hillary Clinton. Um, basically, we know, right? Um, we know that Hillary Clinton was up to no good. We know the FBI let her off the hook, and then they brought the hammer down on Donald Trump. So this is probably important reading. We can definitely revisit this. Um, but with 300 pages, we're on page 74. I'm going to skip over this. Um, apparently, off, uh, allegations following the Clinton Foundation, that's also a part of that. Uh, that is probably very interesting reading. I certainly want to revisit that, but like I said, we're going to skip it. Okay, so this is important. Investigate a referral of a possible Clinton campaign plan. So this is something that DNI Ratcliffe declassified and put out a couple years ago. And we'll just read this. So that intelligence concerned the purported approval by Hillary Clinton on July, two, uh, July 26, 2016 of a proposal from one of her foreign policy advisors to vilify Donald Trump by stirring up a scandal claiming interference by the Russian security services. We refer to that intelligence hereafter as the Clinton, the Clinton plan intelligence. DNI John Ratcliffe declassified the following information. So this has been out there. Um, yeah, basically it's just that, right? Uh, John, uh, John Brennan briefed President Obama and other national security officials on the intelligence. 
including that this involves Hillary Clinton and, um, you know, they're trying to tie Donald Trump to Russia. So there's a red flag, right? This is the same time they're opening up Crossfire Hurricane and nobody hits the brakes. They're not, they're not like, hey, let me pass this over to Director Comey. You know, let's pump the brakes on this. You know, let's not go get FISA warrants. Um, maybe we need to run this down. Like how much of this is coming from Hillary Clinton? We know she's a trickster, right? President Obama, this is the part that bothers me. President Obama ran an election against Hillary Clinton. He knows some of the shady stuff that she does, right? So when President Obama's sitting there and he hears that Hillary Clinton's got this plan, he's not surprised, right? He's not going to be sitting there like, oh, I, I doubt that, right? He's going to think, yeah, I can believe that. And so what, what does President Obama think? And, and that's part of the omission that I touched on at the start of this. Like, where is the coverage of what President Obama knew? Because that's that's like an obvious question, right? If President Obama was briefed, where where's the chapter of Durham's report on President Obama and his top security officials on how much they knew and what their thoughts were and what the briefings were like? I, I can't believe that Durham did not go into that. So um, going back to this, yeah, there's a Clinton plan, right? We, we've already established that. We already knew about that. Uh, this referral went to Jim Comey on September 7th, 2016. And Peter Strzok. So Peter Strzok had it too. It's sort of classic situation where, where Jim Comey and Peter Strzok, they knew or they had reason to suspect because they had a document saying, you know, Hillary Clinton is behind all this. And what steps did they take to actually investigate it? Let's see if Durham gets into it. Uh, Clinton plan intelligence was relevant to the office's investigation for two reasons. First, the Clinton plan intelligence itself and on its face arguably suggests that private actors affiliated with the Clinton campaign were seeking in 2016 to pr promote a false or exaggerated narrative to the public and to the U.S. government agencies about Trump's possible ties to Russia. Well, there you go, of course, right? All these different entities, um, you know, they're providing, you know, false or exaggerated narratives. That's, you know, that's why you'd be interested in. Um, let's see what else. Given the significant quantity of materials that originated with or were funded by the Clinton campaign or affiliated persons, i.e. the Steele dossier reports, the Alpha Bank allegations and the Yodafone allegations, the Clinton plan intelligence prompted the office to consider whether there was a plan, in fact, by the Clinton campaign to tie Trump to Russia. Well, there you go. We know that. Uh, let's see. Yeah, uh, of course it's exculpatory, right? You hear this, like where, you know, this should have been in the FISA application, right? They have this. This is potentially exculpatory. This is something the FISA court should have known. They're seeking FISA warrant coverage against Carter Page saying that he's a potential Russian spy. Well, if you if you have this intelligence that says, you know, Clinton might be orchestrating a plan, you, can ha you have to disclose that because maybe you know, maybe there's some truth to it. And it turns out, of course there is. Let's see what else we have here. I'm going to skip over the rest of the plan unless there's something new. I'm just going to skim this.
nothing, nothing really stands out. You know, DNI Radcliffe, you know, he broke that up. We already knew about that. All right, talking a little bit more. Okay, so this is going a little, a little bit more. So July 28, 2016, John Brennan met with President Obama and other White House personnel. And basically, they're talking about the 2016 election, as well as the potential creation of an interagency fusion cell to synthesize and analyze intelligence about Russian malign influence. Uh, so they're talking about setup of the fusion cell, and we've certainly heard about that a little bit. Scanning through this. Email traffic and witness interviews conducted by the office reflect that at least some CIA personnel believe that the Clinton plan intelligence led to the decision being made to set up the fusion cell. That's pretty, that's pretty damning, right? If you're set up the fusion cell and it's only because you heard, you know, Clinton plan, the Clintons had this plan out there, you know, that's sort of, you know, that's another red flag. Like why, why are you setting up, you know, a fusion cell when, you know, the first step should be running down all the different information and making sure it's not coming from Hillary Clinton. Like you don't need any other steps. Your, your first step is, is figuring out what Hillary Clinton's involvement is. It's easy. Um, anything new here? So it sounds like they couldn't figure out when they first heard about it, other than Director Comey, who, who learned at a meeting on August 3rd. Just sort of scanning through this. Like, there's too much to read. Um, you know, it doesn't look like there's too much that's new or that would be crazy important. He's basically talking about all different people that knew, right? Uh, Bill Priestap was also aware of the specifics of Clinton plant uh, intelligence as evidenced by his handwritten notes. And that was from a meeting with Moffa, Corsi, and uh, Spore. CIA also had a referral, and that's something we heard about too. Um, so CIA completed its referral memo in response to an FBI request for relevant information reviewed by the fusion cell. And they sent that referral memo to, uh, Comey and struck. And the CIA says in exchange, uh, discussing U S presidential candidates, Hillary Clinton's approval plan concerning U S presidential can candidate Trump and Russian hackers. According to open sources, goes for 2.0 is an individual group of hackers whom U.S. officials believe is tied to Russian intelligence services. There, so there you go. You're, they're just talking about the referral. So this is why it's so it's so odd that the hack is not covered in this report, and, it, and it's extremely frustrating. So. We have so many questions about the hack itself and here you are and and if you're john Durham, you're, you're right you're typing this out about you know this exchange where they're referencing you know goose for 2.0 and 
you know, these allegations. And it's like, did you do step one? Did you verify that the Russians actually hacked the DNC server? And apparently John Durham did not. Um, so that's, that's frustrating. What else we have here? At least some FBI personnel appeared to know it was likely being funded or promoted by the Clinton campaign. So uh, handling agent one who met with Christopher Steele, uh, his notes reflect that HC was aware of Steele's info. So that appears to be Hillary Clinton. Um, <laughs> basically saying he doesn't really remember, but he can't think of anybody else to refer to. Struck messaged Auten regarding the Isikoff article. So it was September 23rd. And he says, looking at the Yahoo article, I can definitely say at a minimum Steele's report should be viewed as intended to influence as well to inform. And then struck message Kleinsmith, noting that Steele's unnamed client was presumed to be connected to the Clinton campaign. This is October 11th, right? This is like nine days before the first FISA warrant against Carter Page. So where where is that you know disclosure? This you know the, the FISA court is so intrusive. It's meant for terrorists, and and in exchange for giving up you know certain rights, you know due process and and everything, you know everything is supposed to be you know <laughs> investigated. Like you shouldn't have questions. And this is like an easy question. Like if you think it's related to Hillary Clinton in some way and the Steele dossier, as we know, made up the bulk of the FISA application materials on Carter Page, like this is an easy question. Like, why don't you, you know, disclose that? Why don't you run that down? And as I recall, I think the first draft of the FISA warrant included some language um, relating to Hillary Clinton and included some language about uh, Steele being the source of this September 23rd Isikoff article. And then the second version uh, removed those sections. So when they submitted the FISA warrant, they, they did not disclose these things that they already knew. Let's see what else we have here. I'm going to skip over some of this. Um, it's probably some some really important stuff. I'm just going to try to get through 305 pages, 306 pages. So here they're talking a little bit about the Clinton campaign. So that, this is something that I might have mentioned earlier as something I didn't see in Durham's report was coverage of Clinton and her, her associates. And it looks like there is a little bit of coverage here. So I have to amend my first statement and it looks like Durham does touch on what the Clinton campaign officials might've known at various points, at least. At least in, in regards to this plan um, that they had out there, he covers it. So Skip over that. Uh, 
I'm going to revisit this. I don't want to read it. I don't think there's any nuggets that I would be able to find if I just read it. But um, if I kind of sit down and kind of look through this, maybe I can kind of digest this a little bit more. Yeah, talking about Fusion GPS a little bit, a few emails here. This is all in the context of the Clinton plan. So this is this is good stuff. Um, let's see what we have here. Yeah, basically this is stuff we, we kind of knew. Like we might not have known the, the explicit detail, but we knew Fusion GPS was in contact with Michael Izakoff. We knew that. Um, so some of the stuff, like it's important to get the, the detail, but we, we kind of knew this. Um, what else we have here? Talking about Sussman a little bit. Talking about Elf Bank. Uh, so that's good stuff. Okay, here we are getting really into Elf Bank. Going to skip over this a little bit. It's all about the Elf Bank stuff. So this is not new. We we had this. Um, if you went to the assessment trial and saw the coverage, uh, this is all stuff we had. Yeah. <laughs> the aforementioned facts reflect a rather startling and inexplicable failure to adequately consider and incorporate the Clinton plan intelligence into the FBI's investigative decision-making the crosshair hurricane investigation. Well, of course, right? Like that's like key point number one, like you had this and you didn't run it down. You didn't include it in the FISA applications. You didn't include this anywhere. Like how do you hear about Clinton being behind a scheme like this? And then you have these reports that are like, you can't corroborate. Like there, there's red flag number two is the point at which you cannot corroborate any of this information. And then if, you know, you have a report that Hillary Clinton's making it all up, how do you not connect the two? When you can't corroborate it and you know you have reports that Hillary Clinton is the one making it all up, how, how do you not put two and two together? I mean, why, why did this stretch on for years? You know, because by 2017, and I'm being very generous because I think you, you could have known this immediately. By 2017, by 2018, you would have known, like, how do you not put this together? Like you, you had this plan by Hillary Clinton. You, you were unable to corroborate anything. How do you not figure out that Hillary Clinton was like connected to this and, and that everything was bunk? I, I don't, I don't understand it. Y'all might remember, I mean, the, the fourth FISA application against Carter Page, that was like, I think it was July, 2017. And, and they knew, I mean, they had to know <laughs> really by January 2017, March 2017, but there's no way they had, you know, justification for that fourth FISA warrant. There's just no way. Not when you had all this. Not, I mean, you, these are easy dots to connect. So let's see. Talking about, talking about the FISA warrants. Um, IG Horowitz covered that pretty well. I'm just going to kind of read through this, see if there's anything new. 
just going to kind of skim this for a moment. Yeah, even prior to the initial application, the Carter Page case agent, case agent one, recognized that the FBI's reliance on the uncorroborated and unvetted steel reports could be problematic. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, of course, right? If you can't corroborate it, I mean, it shouldn't be the basis of your, your application. And they say, you know, in this exchange they're quoting, hopefully Steele can get more detailed information, though. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Dates, times, etc. Yeah, it all comes down to how confident we are in that reporting. There aren't a whole lot of details in it. Haha, <laughs> true which is just what worries me a bit. Hopefully the sources, subsources are legit. <laughs> Oops. Yeah, uh, no, they're not legit. Like the subsources don't even think they're subsources. Like they're, they're not in any position to know anything. Maybe you should figure that out before you apply for a FISA warrant. Like that's, that seems like something you want to figure out before you submit that. Um, they seem legit based on past reporting. I don't know what that means. Um, let's see what else. If he has a subsource network that he claims to have and the reporting suggests, you would think they'd be interested in them. So basically they're saying, you know, the British think these guys are bullshit. And, you know, why are, you know, it seems a little bit odd. That's basically what they're saying here. And that's not a red flag enough to put a stop to this. We may have to take a calculated risk with the reporting if we're pressed for time. I'm going to read that again. We may have to take a calculated risk with the reporting if we're pressed for time. That is not the standard. Like, what are your objectives? You're not, to, you're not taking risks, right? You're playing with somebody's life. Their, their life like you're getting a, a FISA warrant against Carter Page and you don't know if it's accurate and you're you're saying if you're pressed for time like that that's crazy that's crazy let's see what else we have yeah talking about talking about the initial FISA application and they're saying Director Comey wants to know what's going on. And McCabe asked who the FBI needed to speak to at DOJ to get this going. So the pressure's coming from the seventh floor, right? It's coming from Jim Comey. It's coming from Andrew McCabe. So when they're talking about, when Comey and McCabe are talking about, well, you know what? You know, I was only briefed at a high level and, and this and that. It's like, no, like you were the one that was pushing this. And, that, and that's something that we were picking up at the Danchenko trial where and the Sussman trial and all the different reports where the seventh floor was heavily involved. I mean, the seventh floor being the leadership of the FBI, they were directing this. They, they were, they definitely knew what was going on and they were pushing this over the objections of the field agents. And that that's what they're, they're talking about here. McCabe noted that the FISA was something McCabe definitely knew Comey wanted. That's so wrong. That is so wrong. 
<laughs> well, here's all the red flags, right? They're going through a bunch of red flags. <clears throat> Don't know who the subsource is. Uh, Fives is a bad idea from a policy perspective. Uh, lots of questions. Are you sources motivation and the reliability or the bias? You notice that they're hired to do opposition research. Uh, yeah. Yeah. The fact that Clinton hired this person to, to, you know, put this together should be a red flag. Should be a red flag. Let's see what else we have. Just talked to Lisa Baker had a bunch of comments, but they were not directed to issue stews now made a bug about big deal about it. I think if the investigative team is good with the facts and the deck is good with the PC, then McCabe should push regardless. Yeah. Yeah. We, we knew about this a little bit um, where this guy, Stu ever Evans, Stuart Evans, I think his name is. Um, had raised, raised these red flags. And we heard about that in the Horowitz report. And um, they just they just overrode him. I mean, he was actually really close to saving the FBI a lot of embarrassment if he was able to stop this FISA warrant. And uh, unfortunately, you know, he didn't... Unfortunately, like, he was a very small fish in a big, big sea of people telling him, like, no, we're, we're going to do this. And uh, here we are today. Let's see what else. Yeah, circling back to the New York field office who, who did this investigation of Carter Page, and they're saying the leader of that investigation was never contacted by Crossfire Hurricane investigators prior to submission of the initial FISA warrant. So that's pretty crazy, right? If you're looking for dirt on Carter Page, you go to the, the, the case agent who's who's already investigating him. That's like step number one is, hey, what do we have in our internal files? And as it turns out, maybe the reason they didn't go to this case agent was when interviewed by the office, that case agent noted that the New York field office viewed Page as someone we needed to watch due to the Russians contacting Carter Page, which we knew, right? Carter Page was disclosing that to the CIA but she and others were never overly concerned about Page being an intelligence officer for the Russians. Well, of course, right? Carter Page is a good guy. You know, he's he's got connections to the CIA. He's disclosing all this information. Um, at no time during the course of her investigation did they ever concern consider pursuing a FISA. Um, but the, apparently, some aspects of her investigation were referenced in that FISA warrant. So. Um, and she said the language was a little strong. Okay. Um, retrospect, need the page investigation, waste money, blah, blah, blah. Let's see what else we have. Page 104, guys. 104, we have 306 pages. Aye, aye, aye. Might have to split this one up. There's a, a lot to cover in one sitting. Let's see. I'm going to skip over FISA coverage. I'm going to skim through it. If there's something new, I'll highlight it. But the FISA, I feel like, is hit pretty hard by IG Horowitz. 
there is some more detail here. I can I can tell that immediately just from reading this, and I can tell that some of this is important, but I'm not gonna like I don't want to slow down just to go through it. Boone's talking about you know she didn't know why the seventh floor was so involved in this case. Um, she didn't know who was the ultimate decision maker. Boone did not have direct communication with McKay, but she understood McKay was heavily involved in all aspects. So, I mean, there's some important stuff in here, but um, I'm really going to try to get to like new, try to get to some newer stuff. <laughs> yeah. Uh, another, another agent on this um, renewal person that signed all three renewals was interviewed and they said that after the initial FISA warrant, so after that first FISA warrant, the investigators had low confidence that Page was a winning agent of the Russian government. So basically they're saying after that first warrant, they got nothing, right? They they, they you know violated the hell out of Carter Page. You know, they they went deep, they looked through everything he had, everything that was going on. And after that first FISA period, which is 90 days, this FBI agent was like, yeah, there's nothing here. Like, uh, and, and despite that, they still signed all three renewals. And, uh, you know, we talked about, you know, the fourth FISA warrant that especially that last one was especially bad. And we'll see what this says. It says, nevertheless, super supervisory special agent number two signed the final renewal because in his opinion, it was incumbent on the FBI to exhaust all resources to ensure that Page was not a Russian intelligence officer. So that's contradictory, right? He said that the first FISA, after the first FISA warrant, he was like, no, there's nothing here. But then he kept on signing on. Um, in essence, it, it appears Supervisor Special Agent Number 2 saw a final renewal of Page FISA as a belt and, belt and suspenders approach to confirm that Page is not a Russian agent. The FISA warrants were, were known. <laughs> That's the crazy thing. By April 2017, I think it was, these were all disclosed. Like, this was out in the public, and Carter Page was going on TV, TV saying, this is crazy. Like, there's nothing to this. And then a couple months after that, they went and they still got another FISA warrant after the existence of, the, the existence of them was, was public knowledge. That, that's how much. Like, that's it's totally ridiculous. Um, and they went and they still got another warrant against them. I, I just feel for Carter Page, who has not gotten any justice. And his lawsuits have gone nowhere. And and this country owes a lot to Carter Page uh, to try to make up for what they did to him. Yeah, talking about the review of public reporting, and they're basically saying, you know, these unidentified sources in public reporting, um, basically there's like an inconsistency, they're saying. Official FBI documentation reflects that all three of these highly concerning claims of Trump-related contact with Russian intelligence were untrue. And we, we heard about this critique by Strzok, who went through it, uh, one of these articles, and he was like, no, um, the FBI had not seen any evidence of any individuals affiliated with the Trump team in contact with Russian intelligence officers. So th this is where the lawfare kind of picked up, where, you know, we're after the election, and now they're spinning up the narrative. 
And as this narrative starts coming out, you know, the FBI is picking up these, these public reporting pieces and they're like, no, like, no, this is not close at all. And what becomes really concerning is that after a couple months of this, Jim Comey still felt saw fit to go to Congress and say, yeah, we're investigating Donald Trump. And by March 2017, when he did that, there was there's no justification for it. I mean, there's just no justification. The, the FISA warrants had, had returned nothing. All the confidential human sources had returned nothing. Uh, nothing had developed. Any information they had started running down had not developed into anything whatsoever. And it, it's totally indefensible for Jim coming to go uh, to Congress and make that announcement because it just bolstered the narrative. And, and it's quite clear that Jim Comey was uh, supportive of creating and crafting that narrative. And that's one of the crazy chapters of this. Yeah, this, so this is something I referenced earlier, right? Regarding the allegation that NSA initially captured these communications between Trump campaign officials and Trump associates and, and the Russians, Strzok repeated that if communications had been collected collected by the NSA, the FBI was not aware of it. So that's, you know, that's one of the early reports that came out where, you know, they're talking about, you know, these contacts with the, between the Trump campaign and the Russians, you know, dating the 2015 or the early, you know, spring 2016 and, and all this. And none of that's borne out, right? They're saying the NSA, you know, this allegation that was out there about the NSA having this information, FBI was not aware of it if, if it was true at all. And um, yeah, I mean, that's another, another red flag where, um, you know, they should have known, they, they, it should have been very obvious to these FBI agents and, and especially Peter Strzok that there's malicious actors, there's malign actors domestically that were spinning up a narrative that was not true. And, and you know, you, you can't just document that internally. Like at some point you have to ask some questions about what is going on and who who's really behind this and what their motivations might be and of course we already knew like peter struck had known right he was one of the people that had known about this this report of this plan by hillary clinton to tie donald trump to the russians so that should have been a red flag right when you're seeing these reports get pushed out there that you know to be false and you're going through them and you're like no this is this is just narrative like this is just garbage this is not true that should have been another red flag to go back. Hey, wait a minute. I heard about Hillary Clinton pushing this kind of stuff. Is this is this Hillary Clinton? And that maybe that should have been a sufficient basis to investigate Hillary Clinton at that time. Um, let's see. Going through this, I'm going to skip over more of this. Uh, Steele dossier. See if there's anything new. I'm going to assume most people know about Christopher Steele. We talked about that earlier. I'm going to skip over probably all the Steele dossier stuff. I mean, that stuff's, that stuff's out there. I'm talking about how it was received, you know, July 5th, 2016. That that's that's out there. We knew about that. Um, again, I might skip over something important. That's you know we have the benefit of a lot of time, and 
there will sure, certainly be other, you know, other talks, and, and we'll certainly dig through this a little bit deeper. But I just want to hit some of the high points. All right, so they're talking about, let's see what, this is something new. Talking about the steel reports from the New York field office. And um, basically like there's this amnesia that happens. And, you know, all these people that received reports or saw reports in July, um, all of a sudden they don't really remember when they received them. Uh, so this guy, Sounds like he was hit with some amnesia where he said he could not remember rece receiving the steel dossier reports while at Hood Courts in July 2016. So Harpster, that's a new name for me. And uh, I will go back and research him and his role a little bit more. Uh, so this is kind of, some of these names are interesting, uh, Coleman, Johnson, those are not names that I'm familiar with. So I will definitely follow back up on those and I'm sure on my Substack I will write something up about them after I have the time to do some research. Let's see. Yeah, they're talking about talking about crossfire hurricane. A lot of titles in here. Like let's this would be a lot to read. I don't want to read all these titles. Basically, Durham's laying out this timeline a little bit, and it looks like he's making some good connections. Uh, like I said, I'm, I'm just going to skim this. If something stands out, I'm going to read it. It's all important. It's all good information, but we don't have to focus, especially because I'm going to lose my voice well before 300 pages. Information from four, yeah. Nevertheless, this is important right here. Nevertheless, within two days of their eventual receipt by the Crossfire Hurricane team, information from four of the steel dossier reports were being used to support probable cause in the initial FISA application on Carter Page. Within two days. That That is uh, a little bit concerning, perhaps. Might be a... <laughs> understating it a bit. <laughs> I mean, doesn't that give you just the warm and fuzzies, right? To hear that the FBI received information from Christopher Steele. They hadn't vetted it. They haven't like looked at it. It's not like corroborated. But within two days of receiving the information, they're like, oh yeah, just put that in the FISA warrant. That'd make up like the, the bulk of our, our FISA warrant against Carter Page. Like that's that's just heartwarming right there. I mean that just, you know, sleep under a blanket of freedom tonight. I mean, it's just just amazing. Uh, going back to the Isikoff article, that's interesting. Uh, 
a lot of that's been out there. Uh, the Rome meeting, definitely very important. Again, I'm not going to go over that. That that has been out there for quite some time, um, especially if you followed uh, Undercover Hubert. Hubert was great with this stuff. All these dates, you know, going to Rome, and uh, and here we're talking about, you know, the FBI might be willing to pay Steele in excess of a million dollars, a million dollars, if he could provide corroborating evidence of the allegations contained in his reporting. Uh, we we heard about that at the Danchenko trial, where he's the FBI was like. We're going to make you, you know, a rich man, right? We're going to give you a million dollars if you can corroborate this. And of course, Christopher Steele couldn't. Um, you know, that's October 2016. And, you know, months ticked by. And they still went and got a, a FISA warrant in July 2017, the final FISA warrant against Carter Page. And they, you know, nobody was like, hey, you know, we, we really... You know, we haven't developed this at all. We offered this guy a lot of money and he hasn't been able to corroborate it. And still they're like, nah, you know, nine, 10 months later, we're still going to use this information uh, to go spy on Carter Page. So that's, that's good. Um, so they're talking about a summary from Brian Auten. And Brian Auten, I mean, <laughs> he's been everywhere, right? Um uh, Certainly involved in the Hunter Biden stuff a little bit, as it turns out. Uh, you know, kind of got a bad look as far as the optics of his involvement in a lot of different things. But they're talking about some notes that he took. And he's saying, on summary provided, among others, the per following pertinent facts. Steele had one primary subsource who fr traveled frequently to Russia. So there, there's a key point right there. Traveled frequently in Russia. Um, not sure if that's true, right? I, I don't think Igor Danchenko was really traveling throughout Russia all that much. You know, he had written this uh, dissertation on Putin, basically saying Putin was a plagiarist. And like, I, I don't know how scared he needs to be or, or would be. Um, but like, I think he visited Moscow that we know of a couple times, but I, I don't think he, you know, he's not traveling. Um, so bullet point number two, most of the primary subsources contacts appear to be unwitting of where their information was going. Well, there, there's another red flag, right? Um, if these guys don't know their intelligence assets, I mean, you know, are they just relaying stuff they heard in the bar? You know, what, what's the, where's the veracity? Where's the chain of evidence or, you know, their evidence, you know, what type of corroboration is there when they don't even know their, you know, intelligence assets? Steele's primary subsource had personal contact with Sergey Milion. That's what he documented. Okay, we need to we need to be careful with that a little bit. So this is what Brian Auten wrote in his notes: was that Steele's primary subsource had personal contact with Sergey Milion. Now there's only two calls. There's there's allegedly two calls that have not been corroborated or established, and that in fact we know to be lies, and they do not have a relationship. Sergey Milion does not know Igor Danchenko. I think there was like one LinkedIn message, maybe. Um, like, it's just totally ridiculous. Like, they don't have personal contact at all. Bullet point number four, Steele provided the FBI with names of four U.S. citizens who may have information. Huh. Person number one is Chuck Nolan. Uh, 
so Chuck Nolan had given some information to Igor Danchenko, uh, or he had fabricated some evidence for Igor Danchenko, and then Christopher Steele thought he might have additional information. So maybe Igor Danchenko told the FBI that Chuck Nolan was a source. <laughs> that's that's kind of weird. And then apparently there's, there's three other people that are unnamed, and that's sort of interesting. But they're all based out of the United States. Steele reiterated that Russian presidential administration spokesman Peskov was heavily involved in the Russia Trump operation. So those are notes, right? We know there's some inaccuracies in there. We know there's stuff that are blatantly wrong. Uh, you know, Sergey Milan did not have contact with Igor Danchenko. Um, Danchenko did not really, he was not really traveling to Russia. Um, but, but there lies like another issue because, you know, the FISA warrants always talk about, you know, this is like a well-placed source in Russia, right? And that was sort of the, the narrative was like, oh, this is like a guy in the Kremlin where like he's hearing stuff, right? And it turns out, no, he's here in, in Washington, D.C. Like he works at liberal think tanks. Um, like he, he's not a guy that, that's going to have the access to, to know people, um, you know, that are going to know like what Vladimir Putin or, you know, the Russian intelligence services are doing. Like it's just totally laughable. Uh, the draft of the warrants, like I said, we're going to skip over some of that stuff. It is important. It, it definitely is important. But, uh, you know, the detail, you know, the devil's in the details. This is where it looks really, really bad. So I'm, I'm not doing anybody any favors by skipping over it. But like I said, I mean, it's, it's 305 pages. So you guys got to forgive me a little bit. I can't read it all. This is really, really important stuff. And if you want to understand how bad this situation is if you want to if you want to know you know what the fbi did wrong and, and really get to the, the heart of the issue this is where you find it it's, it's in these details especially when they quote some of these conversations um you know they're talking about I'm waiting to hear back uh but my super keen investigative skills tell me uh source one has not mentioned the leak and only acknowledges when the FBI brought it up. They never asked and they don't want to ask. They never asked and they don't want to ask. There you go. And, and what they're talking about is that is a cop article. And um, when you when you are a source for the FBI, you can't just run to the media uh, and start disclosing information. Like if you're the FBI, you're supposed to look at that and say, wait a minute, what is this guy's motivations, right? He, he's supposed to be our source and he's running to Yahoo News to, to give them the same information. Like, is he is he really you know troubled by this or is he trying to affect the election? And and that's where the considerations were supposed to come in. And what they're saying here is they never asked if Christopher Steele was the source for Michael Isikoff's article in September. They never asked and they don't want to ask because they knew. They knew that Christopher Steele was the source for Isikoff. Gonna skip over a lot of this. Um, that the information from the article directly came from a well-placed Western intelligence source. Not sure about that.
Yeah, this is what they're talking about, what I mentioned earlier, where, you know, at, at one point they, they knew that steel was the source and then they changed it. Um, why did the FBI assessment change? No FBI department employee was able to provide the office with an explanation as to why the analysis changed, nor did any of the individuals re interviewed recall discussions around it. In his interview with the office, Auden had no recollection of who told him that Steele was not the source of the Yahoo News article, but Auden said his contemporaneous understanding at the time of the Rome meeting, which was October 3rd, 2016, was that Handling Agent 1 had provided that information. Handling Agent 1, however, emphatically denied asking Steele about the Yahoo News article and stated his role in the October 2016 meeting was simply to make introductions. So they're, they're going back and forth where basically they, they had all these notes and they had all these these write-ups saying, you know, hey, we think CRISPR steals the, the the source of, you know, this information in the Yahoo News article, and then they took it all out, right? They totally changed it um, to where they they didn't know who the source of the information was, but of course they did. They knew it had come from CRISPR steel, and they had, they didn't even correct that um, later because Isikoff, I think it was from February 2017, was like, yeah, you know, CRISPR steel was a source of my article. And after Isikoff acknowledged it, the FBI still lied about it. They still didn't change their notes or include that information uh, to say that Christopher Steele was the source, uh, which is just amazing. It's just amazing. Let's see what else we have. Yeah, they're talking about the Steele dossier reports. This, is, this has been covered. It's been covered pretty heavily. OI attorney number one told the office he did not think the FBI was initially concerned with corroborating Steele's reporting, <laughs> although he recalled at some point that some unknown efforts had been made. Yeah, they, they didn't try to corroborate it. They didn't try to corroborate it at all. During the October 3rd, 2016 Rome meeting, Steele informed FBI personnel that his report was primarily generated by a single subsource. Steele, however, would not provide the FBI with the name as a subsource. In late December 2016, the FBI determined that Igor Danchenko was Steele's primary subsource. It's interesting. Let's see if they get into how they identified Igor Danchenko. Getting into Danchenko. Talking about some of his employers. Um, this one was kind of interesting. According to Danchenko, the principal Danchenko employer number one informed Danchenko that he would hire him on the condition that Danchenko would be compensated by an outside source. In, in essence, Danchenko employer number one would hire Danchenko to assist with his immigration status, but not fund his salary. Danko, Danchenko informed Steele about this arrangement, and Steele agreed to pay Danchenko employer number one for the work that Danchenko was conducting on behalf of Orbis. So this is like, <laughs> um, this is 
Target Labs, I believe it's the entity, uh, Target Labs Incorporated. And basically, Danchenko took a job or he was on the payroll for this entity to uh, support his immigration status. And then Christopher Steele would send the payments to this employer. So they're basically laundering this payment to Igor Danchenko. And then Danchenko is really just working for Christopher Steele. He's not doing any work for this employer. Yeah, that's what you're saying. So by any measure, this was an extremely odd arrangement given that Danchenko performed no work related to Danchenko employer's number one's primary business sources purpose. Yeah. Um, employer number one ultimately sponsored Danchenko's work visa to remain in the United States. So that's that's pretty amazing, right? They they laundered these payments from Christopher Steele to Igor Danchenko, uh, basically to uh, substantiate his status for immigration purposes. I'm talking about the counter espionage investigation of Danchenko, which they knew about. And reiterating some stuff we already heard about that, um, basically trying to recruit some people to give some information. Uh, for sensitive diplomatic uh, production uh, through the Russian embassy. <laughs> Brookings researcher number one described Danchenko as sketchy and suspicious. <laughs> I like that Durham included that. That's that's good. Let's see what else we have. Danchenko also told this person that his Russian passport listed him as GRU, the Russian Military Intelligence Service, because of his language skills. That's sort of interesting. Based on these encounters, the individual believe that Danchenko was working for Russian intelligence. Yeah, I'd say so. If he says he's working for Russian intelligence, you might think he's working for Russian intelligence. That, that would seem to be logical. I would say so. Talking about Alton back in 2012. I'm skipping a lot of this. I this is like good background, but talking about the first interview for Danchenko and FBI materials reviewed by the office revealed the primary purpose for the FBI's initial engagement with Danchenko in January 2017 was to recruit him as a paid confidential human source. <laughs> That's that's problematic. Uh, it wasn't to corroborate the Steele dossier. Apparently, they were just trying to recruit him as a paid CHS. And the FBI planned to mine Danchenko for information that was corroborative of the damaging allegations about President Trump. So <laughs> they just wanted more. They just wanted Danchenko to give them more. 
they didn't they didn't say hey provide us more support so that we can verify like that you're legit they just said give us more that's what they did and by making him a paid chs they they could hide him right because all of a sudden he was you know, as a paid CHS, he's immune from a lot of the disclosure requirements from like FOIA or anything to Congress, and they could hide him. And, and so that's what they did. Uh, they interviewed him, granted a letter of immunity, and yeah, classic, classic situation. Uh, checking in on the chat for a moment, kind of neglect you guys. Um, where can we get copies of this report? So if you type into Google SEO Durham, it will take you to a special counsel's office webpage for the Department of Justice. And this report is available on that website. So Google SEO Durham, special counsel's office, John Durham. And this report is available. Uh, let's go back to our document here. So they're talking about Helson. So this, this is uh, good stuff. Kevin Helson was Danchenko's handler. And according to Helson, he was selected because he's a senior agent with knowledge of Russian matters. Um, in early March, Helson prepared the Danchenko source opening documentation. In preparing those documents, Helson incorrectly noted that there was no derogatory information associated with Danchenko and that Danchenko had not been a prior subject of an FBI investigation. Clearly, obviously not true, not true at all. The office was able to determine that Helson became aware of the counter espionage investigation shortly after completing the source opening documentation, but failed to revise the paperwork because of a purported belief that the prior case on Danchik was based solely on hearsay. Mistakes on mistakes, right? Didn't uh, didn't know about it, didn't check on it. And then when he heard about it, he didn't go back and, and actually figure out how significant that investigation was. And, and really the, the crux of this is they didn't want to know. Right. And we've seen that so at so many points during Russiagate and stuff not even in this report um, from John Durham. They didn't want to know when when something was going to you know hurt their case. They didn't want to know. And when they thought they could get more information, they just took it all in. They didn't try to verify it at all. And um, they just kept kept everything going. Uh, let's see. So they're talking about this, you know, opening of Danchenko as a source. This answers a lot of questions. There's a lot of stuff in here. And uh, again, I'm going to skip a fair portion of it just because I can't read it all. <laughs> I don't want to be here at midnight, guys. So um, talking about, you know, Helson did not reach out until May 2019 when Danchenko was being evaluated uh, for validation. And VMU finally raised concerns about the prior counter espionage case. So this is May 2019, right? He had been a source for over two years at that point. And still, they were starting to raise questions about the prior counter espionage case. Crazy, just crazy. 
When the office asked Helson about his reaction to learning that Danchenko pitched a colleague for classified information, Helson stated, it sounds like Dan something Danchenko would do. That's how Danchenko works. <laughs> Basically, Helson doesn't look good. He, he's saying that, you know, <laughs> saying that Dan Chay comes off as a Russian spy is like, he's just being very dismissive of anything derogatory about Danchenko. Despite the unresolved counter-espionage case against Danchenko and Helson's and, apparent, and others' apparent lack of curiosity regarding the matter, the FBI began operating Danchenko as a paid CHS in March 2017, as further discussed below, the FBI and Helsinki made no further efforts to examine the unresolved espionage case until the VMU exposed the security issues around, surrounding Danchenko in May of 2019. So for over two years, they didn't ask questions. Nobody asked any questions. Um, so they're talking about the VMU's, um, you know, source validation reporting where uh, they raised concerns about Danchenko's past association, his behaviors, travel history, the prior espionage case. His contacts, his fairly extensive contacts with known and suspected Russian intelligence officers. Uh, they prepared a February 2018 Customs and Borders inspection of Danchenko, in which a Customs and Border officer discovered business cards for Russian diplomats residing in England. The HSBR also detailed several falsehoods and inconsistencies found in Danchenko's Pfizer application, visa applications and, or excuse me, visa applications and immigration documents. So basically, he's like, yeah, I mean, he's like getting laundered payments through like this shell company or not a shell company. It was like a, it was a legit company, but he's getting laundered payments to support, support his immigration status like it's just bad like there's just so so many examples of this and uh there's like another paragraph here i'm not gonna i'm not gonna even get into it and then they're talking about the vmu's recommendations to the washington field office in helson and they they actually said he should be allowed to remain as chs but recommend several steps be taken to help mitigate the the concerns and they're basically saying, you know, the VMU lacked. They're saying the VMU lacked the institutional ability to do anything other than make recommendations. So that's why uh, they recommended to mitigate some of this stuff. Uh, let's see what else we have. In total, the FBI paid Danchenko approximately $220,000 during the three and a half years that Danchenko was a CHS. That's pretty good income, right? $220,000 over three and a half years. That's, what is that, like 60, 65000 something like that? That's that's pretty good. Um, that's a lot of money. Like, that, that's a middle-class income uh, to fabricate evidence and to be a confidential human source. And then they say, moreover, the office learned that the FBI proposed making continued future payments to Danchenko 
totaling more than $300,000 while the office was investigating this matter. So after they figured out, after Special Counsel Durham was investigating Igor Nanchenko, they were still, the FBI was still trying to pay him more than $300,000 more. <laughs> oh boy. Uh, up here, this this is actually important. I'm going to go back to this. Instead, Helson and, Dub and Washington Field Office ignored nearly all of VMU's recommendations and continued to operate Danchenko as a CHS until Washington Field Office was ordered to close Danchenko in October 2020. And that, that was something that is still crazy because I.G. Horowitz's report came out in December 2019. And it was immediately apparent that this confidential human source had fabricated evidence, right? He had made stuff up. He wasn't reliable. And despite that, 10 months later, he was still a confidential human source. And this was actually, you know, months after, you know, Russiagate sleuths had identified Igor Nanchenko. We had, you know, some of the other sleuths had identified Igor Nanchenko. I think it was, I want to say it was June, 2020. Maybe it was July, 2020. So his name was actually out there and they still, they were still paying Igor Danchenko, you know, 65, you know, thousand dollars a year. And they were, they were trying to negotiate more, more than $300,000 more, just inexplicable. And let's see, tell you, tell you what, guys, we're on page 137 and I don't want to just start skipping through this because that's, that's what I'm going to do. If, if I continue, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to get to page 306 in about 20 minutes because <laughs> I'm just going to start doing I'm just going to start skipping this stuff. And this stuff is too important to skip over. So what I think I'm going to do, I think I'm going to end the stream here. I think tomorrow I will hop back on and try to pick up with part two and try to do the second half of this report. And I know there's some coverage of like Rodney Joffe. So that's going to be really interesting. And like, if I just keep plowing through this, I'm not going to give that the coverage that it probably deserves. So I'm going to end the stream here and um, I will restart this tomorrow, probably around seven o'clock Eastern time. And we will crush the rest of this report. And obviously we'll try to get reactions from all the other Rushgate sleuths and get their analysis and get their takes because this is going to take a few days to digest. So I uh, appreciate everybody hopping on tonight and I will hopefully see you all tomorrow. All right. See you guys.